Matthew chapter 5, our text is going to be verse 38 through verse 48. And I just, before reading it, want to point out one structural note. Both verses 38 and verse 43, you have that, you have heard that it has been said formula, right? And, and so there's good reason to think we should deal with this as two different sections. And I have debated breaking it apart into those two sections, but I think if you stick with me this morning, you'll see why it's worth taking together. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you to not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, give him, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what, re- what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you this morning, and as we come to your word, ask that you would please help us to acknowledge that it is your word, that it comes from you, that it would be alive to us this morning and do the spirit-intended work of conforming us to the image of your perfect son, Jesus. Father, for myself, I ask that you would Give me the physical strength and the spiritual wisdom to be able to lay down the burden of your word before your people. For those listening, Lord, I ask that you would give them ready minds and open hearts and a willingness to pick up that burden and to carry it for your glory. Give give to us those things that we need. Teach us those things that we need to know transform us in every way that we need to change. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and for his sake. Amen. There is a well-worn story from the days of the American Revolution in which an Anabaptist pastor named Peter Miller ministered in Ephrathah, Pennsylvania, and all through his ministry, it was well known that he endured the continual insults of this inn owner 
named Michael Whitman. It was known that Whitman utterly despised Pastor Miller. In an unrelated matter, Whitman was arrested by the colonial army and accused of being a spy for the British. He was put on trial and convicted of doing great harm to the revolutionary cause. And when he was found guilty of treason, Whitman was sentenced to death by hanging. And Parson Miller learned of the arrest and the trial and the verdict and traveled 60 miles on foot to see General George Washington, the only man with the authority to save Whitman's life. Because Parson Miller was well-respected, Washington listened patiently but was entirely unmoved by his pleas and reportedly told Miller, I cannot pardon your friend. (laughs) Miller replied, my friend, he is not my friend. He is my bitterest enemy. He has persecuted me for years. He has beaten me. He has spit in my face knowing full well that I will not strike back. Michael Whitman is no friend of mine. Shocked and confused, Washington asked why the pastor would ask for a pardon for his worst enemy. I ask it, replied Miller, because that is what Jesus did for me. The pardon was issued. It was granted and actually given into the hand of Pastor Miller to be delivered, who dramatically arrived just as Whitman was being led to the gallows. And that traitor, knowing that Miller had refused to retaliate against him for years, made the natural assumption about why Miller had just arrived out of breath as he was being led to the gallows. Old Peter Miller has come to finally get his revenge and see me hanged. You can only imagine the astonishment when the pastor pulled the pardon that saved his enemy's life from his pocket. How few of us, if any at all, would be willing to do this for an enemy. The call of the Lord Jesus in this sermon is to live lives that is so counter-cultural, so counterintuitive, so thoroughly righteous. Our culture and every culture in history declares the very clear message, you should hate your enemies. You should fight against your adversary in order to uphold your personal interest. That enemy can be the kid at school who calls you names or the co-worker who creates difficulty in your job, the boss that conspires with that difficult co-worker. It can be a long-time antagonist of your family and friends. It can be a neighbor who encroaches on your property line, a former friend who sought to turn against you out of selfish ambition. It can be an anti-Christian, anti-religion, loud-mouthed, hate-filled bigot. It can be the lying, no-good, immoral so-and-sos on the other side of the political aisle. Every one of us right now can come up with a person, and probably 20, who considers us their enemy, with whom we have had a continual adversarial relationship or a cycle of conflict, 
Listen to the words of Jesus. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Why? Why would we ever do such a thing? Well, he explains in verse 45 that you may be sons of, the sons of your Father in heaven. That we who have been born again, who have been adopted into the family of God, would bear that family resemblance. In fact, Jesus is going to go so far to say in verse 48, you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And that word perfect does not mean sinlessly perfect, although our Father in heaven is sinlessly perfect. We are not. The word perfect there is the idea of complete or mature. Loving our enemies to exhibit selflessness instead of selfishness is without a doubt one of the most difficult callings of the Christian life. But if you will be perfect, if you would be complete, if you would be mature, if you would be a grown-up Christian, this is a lesson that we have to embrace. Now, a word about why we're taking both of these sections together. Because we could argue that verses 38 through 42 should be separate, its own thing, and then love your enemies could get put off until next week or next month or let's just never deal with it but while these two sections are technically different they go so well together that they transition seamlessly from one to the next which is why jesus preached it the way that he did verses 43 through 48 teach us how to deal with our enemies but verses 38 through 42 teach us how to deal with jesus says an evil person. That first section is describing the, the wicked individuals who would, in verse 39, slap you in the face. In verse 40, sue you for your clothes. In verse 41, force you into physical service. There is a fine line from that kind of adversary to a full-fledged enemy. And so let's deal with this first section for just a moment. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is part of the Old Testament law. In fact, that statement is found several times in Exodus and in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. However, the context is always within the law of Israel as a nation. The legal system in Israel was to exact equitable retribution. The purpose of this command was not to ensure that there would be enough punishment or enough payment would be made. The purpose of that section of that command is to prohibit excessive retribution against some offender. The law exists to be used in the legal system in order to protect the guilty party from being punished too much. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. 
The failure of the typical Jewish teaching in Jesus' day was a two-part failure. First off, they brought that command outside of the legal system and started applying it to interpersonal relationships, right? Somebody does you wrong, go get your revenge. Get your eye for an eye. And second, they used that eye for an eye as a standard of minimum retaliation. Instead of being the upward limits, it was, well, you got to do at least that. And you can imagine how this would get applied exactly the way we do things today. Someone mistreats you, mistreat them back. They slander you, slander them worse. They hit you, hit them back harder. This condoning of personal retaliation just leads to an escalation of the fight. Whatever they did, I'm going to do it back and then some. Jesus says, stop it. Verse 39, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. In fact, he goes so far to say, if they want to slap you in the face, not only should you allow it, but you should allow them the opportunity to do it again. If they want to take you to court over a tunic, that's the inner robe, go ahead and give them the cloak, the outer robe, as well. If someone compels you to go a mile, go two miles. By the way, there really would have been no question here about what person would be doing this compelling. It was part of Roman law that any soldier could grab a bystander and require them, compel them to carry their pack, carry their equipment for a mile. Simon of Cyrene is a good example. As they were crucifying Jesus, the Roman soldiers compelled him to carry this burden. A Roman soldier, a verifiable enemy of Israel, could just grab you and put you to work. Jesus said, not only should you do the work you're forced to do, you should willingly do more than you're forced to do. And we hear it and go, well, but people will abuse that, right? Do you think Jesus doesn't know that people will abuse that? Listen to verse 42. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Whether someone is borrowing, pretending that they're going to pay you back, or just begging with no intention of paying you back, give what you can give. Essentially, your insistence of, I'm going to keep what's mine, I'm going to fight for my rights, You're going to regret coming after me because I'm going to get even. All of that fits perfectly within our sinful nature, within the culture that we live. But the Lord Jesus calls us to be citizens of his kingdom. He calls us to a radical, countercultural life that goes against our sinful nature. This does not mean that we invite abuse. This is not a prohibition against self-defense. Like if somebody's coming to kill you, you just got to stand there and let them. This is not a denial that you may in fact have legal rights. The Apostle Paul 
for example, asserted his own legal rights when they were going to beat him, and he simply said, you know I'm a Roman citizen, and that's not actually something you're supposed to do. What this is, is Jesus teaching that in personal interactions, he calls you to profound selflessness. That your first thought is for how the situation impacts your enemy, reflects on your heavenly father, not how it can be manipulated to suit yourself. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, that is God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not overcome I'm sorry, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let me just say, I know what you have been told about heaping coals of fire on your head part. Paul's point is clearly not do good to them because that's the best way to get revenge. You will make them good and mad. It is that by doing good, endeavoring to overcome their evil, by your well-doing, that is the only way that your enemy might have their conscience burn enough in them to turn from their evil doing. You cannot overcome hate with hate. You cannot overcome anger with anger. You cannot defeat somebody's wrongdoing by doing more wrongdoing. So let's dig into this second section and see how Jesus even expands on this teaching further. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. To this point, every time Jesus has said, you have heard that it was said, he goes on to quote, some portion of the Old Testament law. And this time he does the same thing, sort of. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That first part, love your neighbor, is a clear teaching of the law of Moses. For example, Leviticus 19, verse 18. It says, you shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In fact, Jesus will even later summarize the law by saying all the law can be summarized in two commands. The first, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. But did anybody catch the hate your enemy part in any of that. Hate your enemy appears nowhere in the Old Testament. The closest might be Psalm 139 when David describes 
the enemies of God and says, do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? But that is even not a command. And if it was a command, it is to hate God's enemies, not your own. Most likely what the Lord Jesus is summarizing here is the way that the Old Testament law had been taught to those people in his day. Everyone knew the love your neighbor part. That's part of scripture. But they long debated who counts as my neighbor and therefore, if somebody doesn't count as my neighbor, I don't have to love them. I get to hate them, right? If you remember, later on, Jesus is actually going to be asked that question, who is my neighbor? And he responds with the story of the good Samaritan. By the way, none of the people listening to Jesus would have thought there was any such thing as a good Samaritan. Jesus used that to essentially teach your neighbor is whoever God puts in your path. Your neighbor, it turns out, might be the person that you're thinking of as your enemy. And so let's ask this question of our text. Who is our enemy? It's not always as dramatic as You know, an enemy in battle, some person who is trying to kill you. Sometimes it is a lot less threatening than that. Jesus' definition, verse 44, your enemy is the one who curses you. This could be a person who shouts at you, yells about you. Most literally it means a person who pronounces a curse on you. And it probably doesn't take too much thought for you to recall some individual vocally wishing your doom. Jesus says, that person is your enemy. He also says, your enemy is the one who hates you. Maybe they hate you because they don't know you. I tend to think, whenever I think, man, that guy doesn't know me well enough to hate me, all he has to do is get to know me better and then he'll have better reason. In other words, maybe they hate you because they do know you. Someone who just intensely dislikes you, or as I've said about a couple of people, I'm pretty sure they regret the fact that I was born and they want me to feel the same way. That person is your enemy. Also in verse 44, your enemy is one who abuses and persecutes you. Listen, someone who hates you By hating you, they might hurt your feelings, but it doesn't fundamentally cause you harm. Someone who curses you, they want to verbally cause you harm, but you recognize they don't have the ability to do that. Only God has the ability to do that. And in fact, God has the ability to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And so sticks and stones being absent, somebody cursing you doesn't hurt. But the reality is sometimes people can hurt you. They, Jesus says, spitefully use you. This word means to threaten or mistreat or to falsely accuse. A person who spreads lies about you is your enemy. 
They can persecute you. Literally, this word means to drive away. And so someone in work or school or church who decides that you're a threat and a source of irritation and they want to run you off, this word also came to carry the idea of hunting someone down after driving them away. Putting those people on a run for their lives. In short, your enemy isn't just the person who hates you. Your enemy is the person that you are inclined to hate in return, and listen to this, for good reason. I want to be clear, this teaching is not Jesus saying, you know, you just got to be nice to that person because you don't know what's going on with them and maybe they're not that bad. His presentation here is they are that bad. When someone hates you and curses you and slanders your reputation and tries to drive you away and wants to hunt you down, it is easy to hate that person. All of this should bring us to mind the way Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount. Look back earlier in chapter 5. Remember, none of the Sermon on the Mount is happening in a bubble. It's all connected with each other. And earlier in chapter 5 in the Beatitudes in verse 10 through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you're going to fulfill Jesus' command of having surpassing righteousness, then you have to keep these beatitudes in mind because if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, if you're spoken evil of for Jesus' sake, listen, not your own sake, because look, if you are disliked because you are grumpy all the time and you walk through life biting people's heads off as if being cranky is your spiritual gift, there is no great blessing for that. They dislike you because you're not likable. But when it is a genuine desire to follow Jesus in righteousness that causes people to be put off by you and they decide that you are their enemy, yours is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. Great is your reward in heaven, he says. You can meet them in selflessness Because nothing they can take from you and nothing that you can give is ever going to remove from you your greatest treasure. And so, if that's who our enemies are, how are we to deal with these enemies? How are we to treat them? If Jesus had stopped up in verses 38 through 42, we might say, don't retaliate. That's enough. Withhold retaliation, but... Jesus says you have to go further. You have to go much further. You can't just hold back the bad stuff. You actually have to do the good stuff. First off, love your enemies. This love is a noun. It is not a noun. It is not describing some mushy feelings of compassion and fondness. This is an action verb. Love does something. It's not just a desire for the best for them, but it actively seeks 
the best for them. And as Paul said, if they're thirsty, give them a drink. If they're hungry, feed them. Love meets the need that our enemies have with compassion and mercy. Second, bless them who curse you. It doesn't matter how badly those enemies speak of you. You can speak well of them. When they desire your eternal damnation, return it with your hope for their eternal blessing. The Apostle Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 3.9, Do not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that to this you're called that you might inherit a blessing. Christians do not have the luxury of escalating a war of words and insults. Third, do good to those who hate you. Do not return hatred for hatred. Meet hatred with kindness. Doing good for people who hate you is the only hope you have of turning an enemy into a friend. Listen, there is never going to be a day when your hatred burns so hot that your enemy just stops and says, wow, that is impressive loathing. You have won me over. Jesus also says, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Listen closely. This is important. Pray for them, not just about them. If your prayer is, Lord, that person really hates me, please fix them, make them see what awful, snotty, good-for-nothing so-and-sos they are, That is praying about them. Jesus says pray for them. Pray for them to have peace of mind. Pray for them to have blessings from God. Pray for them to have clarity in the situation. Seek the best for them. Because it is, I'm telling you, it is almost impossible to genuinely and consistently pray for someone and still find yourself hating them. The Lord Jesus' life is the best commentary on his commands. Praying for those who crucified him. Right? Praying, Father, forgive them. And you know that he meant it. Pray for your enemies. Okay, why? I think it's a fair question that when we're called to do something so counterintuitive as allowing ourselves to be mistreated and not seeking retaliation and loving and blessing and praying for our enemies, why would we do that? It's certainly not going to be because there is some burning desire deep down in your heart and in your, you know, most personal nature that causes you to want to do this. Jesus says in verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Stop. We have to stop there for just a moment and be very clear about this statement. As Jesus explains why we should love our enemies, he says that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. That is a statement of correlation, not causation. Let me explain. Loving your enemies correlates, it 
corresponds, it shows that you have the family resemblance of God your Father in heaven. It does not make God your Father. It does not cause you to be a child of God. You do not become a child of God by loving your enemies. You are to love your enemies because that's what a child of our Heavenly Father does. And so just dwell on this for a moment. Remember, Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples, right? All the way back in verse 1, Jesus went up on a mountain and he sat to teach and his disciples came to him. And we know that there are a lot of other people there listening But primarily, Jesus is teaching and preaching to his disciples. We see further throughout the sermon that this is a disciple-focused message. For example, verse 16, when Jesus says to be the light of the world, he says, So let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. To the people to whom Jesus is preaching, they are children of God. He is their Father. Any good works they do is Him working through them so that when they do those good works, Jesus says, it causes people to see and glorify God. Loving your enemy is not a way to become a child of God. It is what you do because you are a child of God. And we have to be very clear about that. And it's going to be even more clear as Jesus continues. Verse 45. Now you may be sons of your Father in heaven, right? That your behavior is going to correspond with the Father's behavior. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Just picture two houses. In one lives a righteous child of God and the other lives an unrighteous enemy of that child of God. You know when the sun comes up in the morning, it hits both houses. The enemy of God doesn't get his own personal little rain cloud that follows him around everywhere he goes. God causes the sun and the rain to come to both. And so to be like our Heavenly Father, it is not the righteous man's job to continually try to rain on his enemy's parade. Love him, do good for him, even as God does good for both the just and the unjust. Now we could go on for 45 minutes there uh, in verse 45, but I don't think that it's necessary. The principle is just that simple. God does good to everyone. This is why you behave the same way to everyone. Now, I will point out, I love that the Lord Jesus, when he says this, he says that the Father causes his Son to shine. God makes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good. And so, in other words, it doesn't happen by accident. Right? And the divine plan and purpose of God He made the sun to rise on your enemy this morning just like he caused it to rise on you. And if your heavenly father can show that scoundrel, that kind of undeserved kindness, you can too. And if you won't, you're not being like your heavenly father. 
There's not a family resemblance there. In fact, Jesus is going to go on to say, you are barely meeting the lowest bar of unrighteous society. So to understand this, remember earlier in the chapter, Jesus had said up in verse 20, that your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. In other words, you take the very seemingly best that Judaism has to offer, and your righteousness needs to surpass what looks like the best there is to offer. Now, if that's not shocking enough, Jesus invokes the worst that Judaism has to offer the tax collectors and the publicans, the traitors to God and to the nation and to their family and to their neighbors. They were the lowest part of society. And Jesus says, here's how you compare, verse 46 and 47. If you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others do not even the tax collectors do so? In other words, if you only do good for those who will do good back to you, there's no reward for that. If you only greet, and by the way, this, this is beyond just saying hello, but let me say anybody who literally refuses to speak or acknowledge people that they don't like, they are not acting like super Christians. The greeting here is this genuine expression of desire for their welfare. And Jesus says, if you only love those who love you, only express real concern and care for the people in your little group, then you're barely meeting the standard of the worst that society has to offer. You are a long way from the surpassing righteousness which Jesus demands. Now, this text is no small challenge to us today. You will not love your enemy if you live according to the values and the ideologies of this world because this world seeks to break everyone down into factions and groups. Right? You need to love the people who have the same skin color as you and if not hate, at least be really suspicious of the people who don't. Men and women, they just can't be reconciled to each other. If you are rich, you are to look with suspicion on the folks who are poor because obviously they're not trying hard. And if you're poor, it's no mystery who it is who has all the money and is holding on to it and won't let it go and you know who you should hate. If you're on the left side of the political aisle, the people on the right only invoke religious liberty in the name of bigotry and hatred. If you're on the right side, those people over on the left are just a bunch of immoral whack jobs out to destroy the country. The world says that you have every right and maybe even the responsibility to hate the people who are not inside your tribe, not part of your little group. And then personally, we even take it further because those people who are inside of our little group if somebody in your circle looks at you wrong, if they're a little bit surly for no apparent reason, if they say something that sounds like it could be offensive, was that offensive? I should just be offended just in case. If you live by the ideologies and values of this world, then the words of Jesus in this text are going to be nothing more than a bunch of nonsense to you. Love your enemy. How could you? Why, why would you? 
But if you're a child of God, you can try to ignore this, but you better not. You can walk out that door today and go right back to being comfortable with despising your adversaries and holding grudges and plotting your acts of righteous retribution. But how is it that a disciple of Jesus follows the command of Jesus? How does a child of God look like their heavenly father? Well, can I remind you how you became a child of God? Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 10, we, we were enemies. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. In Colossians 1, 21, though you are at one time alienated and enemies, yet now you have been reconciled. Loving your enemies is not a command to be ignored. It is an order coming from the Lord Jesus who loved you, saved you, and has the authority to tell you what to do. Loving your enemies makes it evident that you are a child of your heavenly Father. Loving your enemy is what makes a disciple of Jesus stand out in a world filled with hatred and retaliation. And if all of those reasons aren't enough, then you simply have to ask yourself, where would I be if Jesus didn't love his enemies?